Well, those of you who have been here uh, the past several weeks, you know we've been walking through uh, the book of Judges. Uh, if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up and we'll, we'll get you one. We do want you to be there with us. Um, and Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. So if you're unfamiliar, just start from the beginning, Genesis, go seven books forward. Right after Joshua, you hit the book of Judges. Now, those of you who've been around for a while, Christianity, you've been a Christian for a while, you've been reading the Bible for a while, you know Judges is a rough book. When I started the series, a couple of folks gave, you know, kind of made comments like, oh, Judges, huh? Oh, you know, like, whoa. Um, especially when I said I was going to be there for several weeks, you know, just hanging out in Judges. Nobody wants to hang out in Judges. It's pretty brutal. And then here we are, it's snowing. The wreaths are up, right? Got the tree, the Advent graphic. It's Christmas, uh, Advent time, getting ready for Christmas. And we still got one more sermon and judges left. That's going to mess things up, man. Why would we do that? Well, I got two responses for that. The first is, it doesn't matter where we are in the Bible, it's, it's prep for Advent. Uh, all of the Bible picks up on the promise in Genesis 3.15, this big mess that we got into is finally going to be resolved by a seed of the woman finally crushing the head of that serpent. Genesis 3.15, right? So all of Scripture is how God is unveiling that plan, bringing that plan to reality. The second thing is why... Uh, so first, any, any Scripture passage leads you to Christmas. The second is the book of Judges is why we need Christmas. You know, we we don't want to dive in and go, okay, the Savior, the King. Why a Savior? Why a King? The book of Judges forces you for 21 chapters straight to grapple with what you're like without Him. Uh, He talks about, the author talks about uh, Israel, and he uses Israel as exhibit A, of what life is like when you're left to your own devices. You kind of you do things your own way. And what happens when that happens? Right in chapter 1, they start out kind of obedient, right? They're supposed to go in the land, kick everybody out. They go in the land and take over, but don't quite kick everybody out. Then Judah starts and he kind of kicks out the tribes, the people that he's supposed to kick out. And then... The Benjamites, the Benjaminites, they kind of start, but then they, they cower back and they, they fail. And Dan is supposed to do this, and they, they don't because they're chariots. And there's all these excuses, and they don't quite finish the job. Not a horrible start, but it's not really obedience because it's partial obedience. Then what you see is a succession of cycles where uh, their disobedience grows. And their distance from God widens. And things become so bad that God has to raise up a person, a judge, to lead them. Not a judge like the guy with the robe and the gavel that pronounces a verdict, but but a leader who leads them out of the mess, restores them back to a place where they're obedient again, but then the judge dies. And they do it all over again. What we have here in the last episode of the book of Judges is the author kind of having laid out chronologically how things happened in Israel, now he's kind of taking a step back and go, I left the best for last, or should I say the worst for last. 
Do you think it got bad? Do you think it got bad when Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter? Do you think it got bad when Samson, who was supposed to be uh, God's man, God created him in the womb specifically for the purpose of leading Israel, and he was this ultimate failure? Do you think that was bad? Look at what happens to this nation that is supposed to be God's people. So let's go to uh, Judges chapter uh, 19, or chapter, yeah, chapter 19, and we've got three chapters to cover today, so I hope you had a big breakfast. No, we're not going to go slowly through each chapter. Here's what we'll do. We're going to read chapter 19 together, straight through, no comments. Read chapter 19 together, get it out in front of us, then we'll kind of uh, circle back, get the lay of the land. And then I'll summarize 20 and 21 before we close. As we get to Judges chapter 19, here's the author saying, uh, this is probably the most representative event of what happened in this time of God's people as to what happens when they are not on board with what God has revealed Starting in verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some months, for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her, and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him for three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and, and go home. Verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem, He had with him a couple of saddle donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us, come and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. 
So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming up, uh, coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I'll care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkey feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to meet them, or went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But, do, but against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came. The woman came and fell down at the door of the man where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house went out to, and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey And the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Just when you thought the book of Judges couldn't get more brutal, more tragic, more difficult, he saved the worst for last. There's clues in chapters 20 and 21 that this didn't occur after chapters 1 through 18, but sometime during or earlier on. But he he reserved it for last, not because it happened last, but he reserved it last because it's it's the best representation of how bad things got for Israel. 
And we would not do well, we would not do well to skip passages like that. To just fast forward to Jesus dividing bread and fish for people. Let's just fast forward to Jesus walking on water and casting out demons. Let's, let's skip ahead to like when David kills Goliath, you know. We'll miss sight of what happened in Genesis 3 as to why we needed Genesis 3.15, the promise to crush the serpent, the trouble that we're in. And this passage is representative of how things go without God. You see how messy things get. He really likes to lay on thick that, um, that it was a Levite. This is the second Levite that's, that's horrible, right? We just finished reading about Micah in the previous episode, and he was a Levite. These guys are supposed to be worship leaders. They're, they're, supposed to, they're priests. They're supposed to be representing the people to the Lord. And this is how Levites act. He doesn't just say a, a random dude, a Levite. You don't need his name. You just need to know what he was supposed to be, and he wasn't. And he story starts out you don't really think it's necessarily bad i mean it's messed up that he has a concubine if you just stop for a minute why were there concubines (laughs) why were there multiple wives well for the same reason why there was divorce and when they asked jesus they asked them didn't they why did you why what there was divorce so what are you talking about this should just be one man he said from the beginning was always supposed to be one man one woman the reason why it got messy was because you guys were hard-hearted you couldn't follow rules. So we were going to lay on more. But concubines was never God's plan. It's already messy before it even got messy. Goes after her. Has some time with the father-in-law. Goes on in his own way. And then the irony, right? His, his servant tells him, hey, let's stay in this city over here. Why does he tell him no? <laughs> we're not going to stay among foreigners. We're going to stay among the people of God. We're going to stay among Israelites. And those are the people that commit the atrocity against him, against his concubine. It's ironic because you would think Israel would be the safe place. You'd think Israel would be the place where you can trust each other and it's God's people. But it's not. It's the opposite. They're the opposite of what God planned them to be. So after that great irony, we see an episode where if, uh, if, you, if you remember being in Genesis recently, Judges 19 reminds you of Genesis 19. Because in Genesis 19, God promised to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But first he had to get Lot and his family out. And you all remember when Lot and his family had the, the angels with them the people came and they beat on the door and they said bring those men out so we can have our way with them now the way they got out of it was the angels made them blind and they got out of there right but this time no angels no angels showing up doesn't say god intervened they're so far from god there's no abraham even lot was kind of a bad guy right but god at least intervened to get lot out of there They're not even worth Lot. They're worse than Lot. And in very many ways, they're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because at least Sodom and Gomorrah 
didn't have the covenant with Yahweh. Here's a people that have the covenant with Yahweh, have seen his rescue, have seen his wondrous works, that have Levites as priests to teach them what God, who God is and what he expects. They're supposed to know better, and they're worse. Judges 19 is supposed to remind you of Genesis 19 by way of comparison and contrast. It sounds the same, but it's different. It's different because it's worse. This is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, when Jesus was refused by his own people, he said to some of them, it'll be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, because at least you had exposure to me. This is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's tragic in more ways than one. It's tragic that they would offer their daughters or their concubines as cowardly men to just kind of push their women out there and and then close the door and latch it. And then he goes to sleep. That's what it sounds like, right? Because he gets up in the morning and doesn't realize, oh, oh, there she is at the door. Where have you been? Get up, let's go. What have you been doing, man? You weren't peeking out the window and seeing what's going on, biting your nails? Probably took a snooze. And we go back and we realize, well, in Israelite culture, you know, there was this... uh, they had, they had such a high view of hospitality that the worst thing you could possibly do was allow someone that was staying in your house to be violated or hurt. Well, that's true. A much higher sense of hospitality than, than we have. But, but, but that would be to miss the point. That would be to excuse what's happening here. God doesn't look upon the book of Judges with approval. The book of Judges isn't written to go, hey, here's how I like society to go. <laughs> It's the opposite. Here's how society goes when he's not in it. And the hospitality rule is an excuse. He says, don't commit this atrocity, right? Don't commit this atrocity. Don't, don't commit this, this horrible act. You're with him up until that point. And he goes, here, do this other atrocity instead. A man gets up, you think he's going to start weeping, break down crying. Oh, he takes, takes, him back, takes her back to the garage, puts her across the wooden horses, pulls out his biggest knife, sharpens it, and wants to send a message. Divides her up into 12 pieces, send each piece to a tribe, and say, hey, look how bad we've gotten. And the tribe says, man, it's never been this bad. It has never been this bad. We need to do something. So... What do they do? Well, in chapter 20, they gather to come hear him out. He doesn't quite tell them the truth, right? He's not like, well, I was scared for my life, so I pushed my concubine out there. He's like, oh, they were going to kill me, and they ended up killing my concubine. Hmm, how did that happen? He kind of gives them half-truth, and then he asks them for counsel. What do you guys think? What should we do? What's your advice? That's in 20, verse 7. Well, they round up 400,000 of they're troops of sword-wielding guys ready to fight. They're going to they're gonna go up to Benjamin and tell Benjamin, you all need to give us the perpetrators right now. Present them to us. Don't make us go digging around for them. Put the perpetrators right here, and we're going to kill them. We're going to execute them. And Benjamin says, no, we're not going to do that. So they refuse, and they gather 26,000 of their men. Ooh, I mean, one tribe is so lost that they're, they're not going to listen to 11 other tribes. 
And we're going to destroy you if you don't fix this right now. No, we're not going to fix it. We're doing our own thing, our own way. We don't want to hear anything about Yahweh or covenant or tribes or brothers. We're living with the people of Gibeah. We like the people of Gibeah. We like what we do, and we're going to do whatever we do, even to the death. Let's fight. There's no reasoning with them. So against Israel's 400,000 troops, they pull out 26,000 troops, and then they ask Gibeah for help. And Gibeah says, we're going to send you our 700 Navy SEALs. Right? 700 specialists. They're crack shots with the slingshot. Not only are they crack shots with the slingshot, but they're lefties. Now, I'm not sure exactly why that's special. Okay? Um, I know lefties always talk about the word geniuses and everything. Okay. Yeah, maybe. But one or two commentators mentioned something that I thought was interesting, where if you have most soldiers that are righties, they would wear their shields on their left arms. And if their shields are on their left arms, uh, a right-handed slinger would be more easily blocked with the shield being on that side. Those of you that are into baseball understand the matchup between a lefty pitcher and whether the batter is lefty or righty, right? What side of the box is he on? That ball is going to come in at a certain angle. So if you're slinging a shot and the shield is on one side, it's more easily blocked than if it's on the other side. If you're a righty and you're wearing the shield on your left side and I'm a lefty and I can sling it from this side, and as the scripture tells us, they can hit a hair and not miss, they could take a lot of guys out. So they're pretty cocky, right? They got their 26,000 guys that you cannot reason with. They're going to fight. And then Gibeah gives them 700 uh, lefty snipers, right? that are going to go with them. And so they're, they have confidence in themselves. So Israel asks, who shall go? Who's going to go up? Just like they ask in chapter 1. God gives the same answer he gave in chapter 1. You know who's going to go first? Judah. Judah's going to go first. Let's go. So they go. They fight. They fail. Thousands of them die. They come back. They pray. God, What happened? <laughs> We said, who are you going to send? You said Judah. Sounds like we're on the same page. We go, we got slaughtered. What should we do? God says, go again. Okay, they go again. They get slaughtered again. Not as bad this time, but they get defeated again. Still lose thousands of people. Come back. God, like, should we quit? You know, what, what should we do? God says, go. This time, this is it. So they go, and this time the strategy is a little different, right? They set a few thousand guys over an ambush. They start fighting people at Gibeah. They start pulling back. The Israelites start pulling back. Gibeah goes, man, they're getting defeated just like they were the first two times. And start pushing out of the city up uh, into uh, where Israel was retreating, which was north. Right? The guys that were laying in ambush wait till the city is evacuated. They go in the city and they burn it down. They kill everybody. Everybody that was left behind, guys that are too old to fight, women, children, the dogs, the pigs, the cows, the hay, the stables, the homes, the shops, the pharmacy, the apothecary, whatever you call it back then, all down, all raised to the ground. Once the smoke is going up from the city, Israel sees that, and they say, let's stop pretending like we're retreating. Let's fight now. They start fighting. Benjamin is going, whoa, there's an actual fight. Let's go back to the security of our city. They turn around. They see it in smoke. The only way they have to go is east. By the time it's all over, there's only 600 Benjaminites left. The city is gone. The wives are gone. The children are gone. The pets are gone. The livestock is gone. The food, the storehouses, the weapons, everything is gone. It's just a big heap of smoke. Sounds like things were resolved. 
it's not resolved. Because after the war and everyone's done partying and they wake up the next morning from their partying and they realize, we got a problem. The problem is, before they attacked the first time, they all made an oath. Hey, we're going to go attack Benjamin. We're going to make an oath. Don't any of you give any of your daughters to any of the survivors of Benjamin. And so they made an oath. You know how they feel about oaths. Dude sacrificed his daughter a few chapters ago. <laughs> you make an oath, you're done, right? They made an oath. We, whoever survives this attack, this war, from the tribe of Benjamin, don't any of us give any of our daughters to them. And so their, their idea was let's wipe them out. Killed all their kids, their women, and wiped them out. And whatever dudes are left, they can't continue the tribe of Benjamin. As soon as those guys die, Benjamin is off the face of the earth. Now they feel bad. You have 600 guys. They have no wives. They're defeated. They're not as cocky anymore, you know. And they go, man, we've got to fix this problem. What would it look like to everyone else if one of the tribes that God established is missing it's just gone wiped out by the other tribes that that doesn't look good for god well what do we do they come up with a solution they come up with a solution the solution is you know what when we went up to fight who didn't fight with us who's a chicken here who cowered out who who said nah we're not going to fight and they just stayed home well these guys are jabesh gilead they stayed home they didn't fight bring them here we're taking their wives that's it. So they go in there, they fight them, they kill, kill folks, take those wives, and they say, okay, Benjamin, here. You have the wives of the cowards that didn't want to fight. Here you go. Have fun. But it wasn't enough. They needed 600. I don't know how many they had. It wasn't enough for them. So they had needed another solution. Here was their solution. They said, you know, every, every year at Shiloh, there's this big party, and families come, and they, they dress up their virgin daughters almost like a quinceanera or something, you know, and they dress them up and, and they throw them out there and they start dancing to music, you know. Never been touched by a man, not married, they're single, and they look their most beautiful, you know, they're up you know, for the party. There's always this party there at Shiloh. Let's have Benjamin take those women. Yeah, good idea. So they tell Benjamin, when they start dancing, just come out from hiding and snatch those women for yourself. <laughs> There's a solution. You think Benjamin's going to go, no, no, that's just, that doesn't sound right. These guys were banging on the door the previous chapters. Okay. They wait in ambush. The moms and the dads, you know, fixing their daughter's hair, getting them all nice and pretty, and they're dancing in the street for this celebration. It's not like evil idol worship or anything like that. It's just a celebration. And the Benjamites come out, and they snatch their women. And they go, whoa, what are you doing? Here's the reason they give them. You ready? You couldn't give us your daughters because you made an oath. We're protecting your oath because you didn't give us your daughters. We took them. We're good now. Why is that there? Like, we're reading the story and it's interesting, right? And then you think, why do we have three chapters of this nonsense? It just gets worse. They clean up one atrocity by committing another atrocity. It wasn't God's idea to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. They took it into their own hands. And then they realized, yeah, I think we overstepped what we were supposed to do here. Now we're in trouble. And the only way to resolve their problem that they created is more atrocities. 
killing men from another tribe. Okay, sure, they were cowards, but was that God's plan? I want you to kill. Here's how we're going to fix this, this whole tribal civil war. Go to war with another tribe now. And then here's how we're going to solve the next problem. Steal wives from tribes that did fight. I mean, it just gets worse. So you look at this, uh, chapters 19 and 20 and 21, and it's one atrocity after another. You're wrinkling your, eye, your, your brow and you're going, what is going on in these pages? Why is this here? And the reason why it's here is to point out that left to their own devices, they were unable to figure out what wisdom was. They were unable to figure out what right was. What, what is morality? They, they had no sense of right and wrong except their own broken meter. It's like a, a broken compass and they're following it, you know? And it doesn't just lead them a little bit off the path. It leads them somewhere on a different planet. And so what the author is communicating is in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we got God's law. God saying, here's how to relate to me. Here's how to live your life. And then in Joshua, we have what's supposed to be the beginning of going, let's establish this. Let's be a people that live this way. And then by the time you get to the end of Judges, you realize this is a people that took Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and threw it in the garbage. What happens when you do that? Genesis 19, 20, and 21. That's what happens when you do that. So it's not hard to miss the point of the book of Judges which is the chaos of moral relativism. What is moral relativism? Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, I'm glad you do that. That's good for you, but that's not what's right for me. That might be right for you, but why are you imposing what you think is right for you on everybody else? We don't think that's right for us. We want to do it this way. That's moral relativism. And don't buy into this nonsense that it's, oh, it's postmodernism. Sure, postmodernism made it popular. It put it in every man's language. But it's the book of Judges is what it is. It's called depravity. I'll do it my way. That's the sinner's mantra. Don't preach to me. Don't preach to me. It's the chaos that ensues when that's what society looks like met someone recently that was explaining to me that she goes to church. She goes to a Catholic church. And she said, but it's just tradition, you know. It's just tradition. I don't really, I'm not really involved. It's just, you know, for my kids and catechism and, you know, baptism, or whatever. And, you know, and, you know, I'm just, I'm very liberal. I'm very liberal. Um, but uh, at least the Catholic church, she said first, I'm upset with the church that they don't kind of get with the times, you know. But at least they're kind of moving in that direction. So, you know, there's hope. And I'm thinking to myself, what a strange thing. I mean, if we get to make up what's right, why, why the cumbersome tradition that you hoist upon your kids? Why, 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 why the... The, the show and pony, you know? Why, why showing up and, and religious and guards and the bells and the water that they sprinkle on your little kid, you know? Why, why all of that if, if, if your ultimate authority is just yourself? 
when the priest stands up there and opens the Bible? I mean, is it just, is it just opinions? We see this more and more in the evangelical churches as well. We thank God that the book of Judges points out the solution. He points to, I should say, the solution, which picks up on that Genesis 3.15 thread, that promise of the one that comes to fix. How's that so? Look at the first verse and the last verse of what we read today. Let's look at the last verse because that's where we are, right? 21.25. Here's how the book closes. The book of Judges closes with this line. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You don't have to ask the author of Judges, what was your point, man? I, he gave it to you. There's his thesis statement right there. 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own. Why did they do what was right in their eyes? Because they didn't have a king to tell them what is actually right. You read the first verse of this episode in chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1, that's where we started today. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite did such and such. See it there again. What's the point? Why why was it important that there wasn't any king? Because in the absence of a king, they were all a king unto themselves. They did whatever they individually wanted to do. Instead of rallying around someone who holds up truth and says, guys, this is authoritatively true. This is what you need to do. They didn't have that. So what was the result? They individually did what they felt like doing. Each tribe felt like doing what they did. Each individual person felt like doing whatever they felt like doing. You see in earlier chapters, it's not always just totally rejecting God. Sometimes they wanted God in their lives, but they wanted God in their lives their way. And they make their own ephods and they make their little gods. And like, here's my wife's God and there's my grandfather's God. And then here's God, the God that I grew up with in church. But let's all just, let's all just get along. Buddha, meet Jesus. And, you know, like here's, here's you, you know, I'll put a little thing of rice for Buddha. And Jesus, I'll, you know, I'll pray and, with some beads or something. I mean, it's syncretism, right? And what's happening is they're just making up religion as they go. Because they don't have a central source of authority to tell them, no, actually, this is what your life is supposed to be like. It's no wonder that sometimes the most difficult children aren't difficult because they're difficult. They're difficult because increasingly we have parents that decide, we just want our kids to decide what's right for themselves. Okay. You want to talk about why he has tantrums all the time? That's not what kids need. What kids need is parents to tell them, this is what's right. Here's what we've discovered. Here's what life is like. Gravity makes you go down, son. It doesn't matter what you think about gravity. You can't fly, kid. That, that, that's not crushing your dreams. That's not, that's not pressing you into a box. That's life. And we're all like little kids that need direction from an authoritative source. You really shouldn't care what I'm saying. You should care what this says. This is why we pass out Bibles. Do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible? When we read scripture verses, we put it up there so you don't miss it. This isn't about me. We need a central source of authority. And verses like that, those aren't the only ones. If you're taking notes, you can also write down a couple other verses. Uh, 17.6, 18.1. 
right in that story of Micah and the Levite, that other uh, horrible story, disgusting. Uh, Again, punctuating. They had no king. They did what was right in their own eyes. So he points forward to the rest of the book. The book of Ruth protecting the line and the lineage through which Jesus would come. You get to the book of First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles where they talk about the lineage of kings and some of them were good and some of them were bad, but the ones that were good were the ones that pointed to this ultimate authority which is God and what God has before us to do and not do and we're supposed to do that and not do that. God said it, let's do that. And the bad kings were the ones that kind of just went on their own. They, they went kind of judges style, right? They just kind of did what was right in their own king, in their own eyes. But all of that is pushing ahead to the book of Matthew. And the agenda of the book of Matthew is to put before you that promised king. That's why we start with that long birth narrative. So-and-so had so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I get it. Why is it. Why is there a birth narrative with genealogy in the beginning of Matthew? He's trying to show you that he's tracing for you that from David, that king, came the ultimate promise of the one king who will never be dethroned. The one king who will never fail. The one king who when he says, this is true, follow it, you don't have to wonder, is he off the rails? Is he really following? I mean, even David had his time of kind of going off the rails, right? Jesus never goes off the rails. He's the perfect king. He's the one we've been expecting this whole time. He's the one that the book of Judges was longing for, and he's here. That's Matthew's message. And how does the book of Matthew end? Matthew 28, 19, he gives them a command. Go, therefore, into all the earth and do what? Make disciples. Well, what is discipleship? Jesus told them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's entrance into discipleship. Once you're entered, what do you do? Baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you, I being Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm king, and discipleship is following the king. It's service to the king. The king says this is what's right, and that's what you do that's right. The king says this is what's wrong, and that's what you do that's wrong. If you're not a believer in here this morning, your ultimate authority is yourself. That might feel pretty empowering. That might feel pretty good. No responsibility. The only responsibility you have is to yourself. And it feels good at first. But you're in for cycles of chaos and destruction. And then you've got no reason for it. Except I made it up. I made it up as what I wanted to do. For believers, we have the authority. We have the authority, right? Christ gave it to the apostles. He affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. And he gave the apostles the Holy Spirit so that they could produce what we have in the New Testament. And so this is authoritative. This is how we do discipleship. This is how we follow Christ's commands. Here they are. Right here. Anytime they challenged Jesus, he quoted the Old Testament. Don't bind to this. But Jesus never said anything about that. Yes, he did. He did when he said the Old Testament will not lose a jot or a tittle. So if the Old Testament affirms it, Jesus affirms it. Here's Jesus' word. As believers, how often do we kind of fly off on our own? You know, we we go to experts and advice. We listen more to like Dr. Phil types than we do to elderly folks in the congregation that have been walking with Christ for generations. We, We listen more to the radio talking head on the radio 
than we do to preachers and pastors that have been studying and trying to access the wisdom of God. So I think as believers, we take a note from the book of Judges and say, boy, I don't want to do things my way. I I don't want to do things my way. My way is terrible. What I think is right can lead me into some dark paths. What I need to do is recognize that Christ is not in my life as a buddy. He's in my life as a king. And I need to hear what he says so that I can follow it by the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We don't hear what he says if we're not engaged in the word. You want a New Year's resolution? Read the Bible. Read, read the book of John. Read the book of Judges. <laughs> read Genesis. Read Revelation. Doesn't matter. I've met a person recently who's just starting out as a Christian. He's like, you know, I started reading the Bible on my own. I'm like, great, where are you? He's like, the book of Revelation, man. I'm like, oh, this guy's going to be asking me a lot of questions, you know, (laughs) that I don't know. But I didn't disparage him. I'm like, great, man, great, man. Uh, Focus on Christ. He's the guy riding the horse. He's the king that wraps everything up. Focus on him more than on what you might be reading in the newspapers, and you'll be all right in the book of Revelation. But Christ is king. He's the one we follow. We don't have to figure things out. We just have to understand what he's saying here and follow that. That's what our kids need. That's what parents need. That's what families need. That's what our society needs. Amen.